Welcome to the Heroes of the Great War podcast. This is Mark Carmichael, writer, researcher, amateur historian. And as today is Robbie Burns Day, I'm also one whose life mantra Robbie himself would support. That is, life is far too short to drink bar scotch. Welcome to episode three of this podcast series. And this one's going to be a bit longer. And I could actually, I could honestly say that the subject of this uh, podcast would probably not support me telling his story. How do I know? Well, I talked to his grandson, and his grandson said his granddad probably wouldn't support me. However, if we think about it, so many surviving veterans of the Great War would also not support us telling the story of of them taking other people's lives. And I appreciate that. But the subject of this story, when he returned from England at the end of the Great War, he, effect he essentially disappeared for 20 years. He moved to California and got married and basically got, he was totally out of the spotlight for a long time. He became an anti-war pacifist and joined the Church of Latter-day Saints, eventually came back to Canada and raised a family. But I could, I could say the last thing that he'd really want me to do was to glorify war in any way, especially as being a, uh, a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints. It's, it's definitely something that they would not support. And I understand and I appreciate this. But I also can say that, well, as a historian, it is our jobs to tell the stories of the past. Uh, we all have a shared past, and, and not all the stories are are something that 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 we, we have to kind of put under the covers. It's we have to be able to highlight who we are and where we came from, and and tell the extraordinary stories of extraordinary people who did extraordinary feats in extraordinary times. It's essential and it's important for us to do so. And I can I could say that the the subject of this story didn't think that he was that special. How He knew he was good at what he was doing and that he could make a difference and help his country out in the time where they needed it, but he didn't really think himself as special. However, what he was able to accomplish in, accomplish in such a short period of time is a story that needs to be told. It's a good story. It's an interesting story. It's a compelling story. So, here is a story of the Canadian war ace, Captain Alfred Claiborne Atke. These shows would see some of the greatest legendary figures of the war appear up on stage. William Billy Bishop, the Canadian ace of aces. Along with his mates, William Barker and Raymond Collishaw. Then there would be Edward Manick, Britain's finest, in the South African sniper Andrew Procky, Beauchamp Proctor. And then on the opposing side, the illustrious Red Baron, Manfred von Richthofen. And he'd be accompanied by his flying circus troops that included Ernst Judith, Eric Lowenhardt, and his younger brother, Lothar von Richthofen. However, from this collection of giants, there was one pilot 
whose name had, not even when he was prowling the skies, been included on the same bill which with such illustrious airmen. However, he was Canada's fifth highest scoring ace in the war, compiling 38 victories and earning the 38th top scoring ace of the war from a list of all combatants. And in the month of May 1918, while the heart of the German offenses offensive was raging, raging down below when the skies were filled with the greatest number of German and Allied airmen. One Canadian pilot, Captain Alfred Clay Bernacki, emerged as the most efficient, deadliest pilot of the war. He is and remains to this day one of our most unknown, forgotten heroes of the Great War. Uh, Alfred who? Who was Alfred Atke? Well, you probably never heard of him. But hopefully after listening to this podcast, you'll learn a bit more about him. Now, Alfred Atke was born in Toronto, Toronto, Ontario, on the 16th of August, 1894. When he was still young, his father decided to pack up the family and move to Saskatchewan. He wanted to try his hand at farming. And as he grew up there, uh, eventually Atke determined that the f endless fields of waving wheat were just not for him. So when he reached adulthood, he moved back to Toronto and got a job as a writer for the Toronto Evening Telegram. Incidentally, this also turned out to be a perfect time for an ambitious young man like Atke to become a journalist. Because working in a newspaper business gave the 22-year-old apprentice first-hand exposure to one of the most monumental conflicts in the history of mankind taking place just overseas. And his position entitled, me, entitled him to be one of the first persons in Canada to read the stories that were being cabled over to North America from France and England. Coincidentally, though, it could also be suspected that this time is when he started to learn about that fantastic world of aviation and the innovative use of airplanes as a form of modern warfare. As Canada did not have an air force of its own at the time, Aki decided to travel overseas to England and enlist. And his career as an airman began with the rank of probationary second lieutenant in the number 18 squadron of the Royal Flying Corps. A few details are available, available about his early stages of his service, but it is known that in September 1917 he was assigned to a bomber squadron and began flying Airco DH-4s. Now, the DH-4 was a two-seater biplane that had a pilot and an observer. Most of the top pilots at the time were single, flew single-seat airplanes. However, with the dual-seat plane, Atke served as the pilot and armed with a single-barrels Vickers machine gun and his mate would be behind him, acting as a rear gunner and observer 
and he would be manning a 303 Lewis gun. Or he also had the great job of lobbing bombs down on unsuspecting Germans. After the Battle of Passchendaele, also known as the Third Battle of Ypres, in December 1917, both sides saw a traditional winter lull on the flank. It was just too cold. But during these coming out of this slow period, though, Atke would record his first confirmed victory. And the first and second kills were recorded on the 4th of February 1918 while piloting his DH-4. And this one was achieved over the skies of Messines, Belgium, just south of the city of Ypres. Let's take a few steps back here and and look at where we were at the war at the time. It was the winter of 1918, and two materially significant events were taking place. On the Axis side, on the German side, they had just signed an armistice with Russia, which freed up an incredible 50 divisions of troops to be redeployed to the Western Front. That number equates to more than a million men being sent to bolster the capabilities of the German war machine on the Western Front. Also, though, at that time, on on the Allied side, they saw a maddlingly slow deployment of a new entrant into the conflict, the United States. Now, the USA was assembling a massive armed force that consisted of upwards of over 2.8 million men, all training themselves up and readying themselves to join in on the battle. So when you consider these two circumstances, the German general staff decided that now was the time to strike. They needed to get, they needed to strike before the United States got into the conflict. So on the March 21st, 1918, the Germans executed Operation Michael. Operation Michael is also known in history as the German Spring Offensive. And that offensive took place on, again, the 21st of March and continued all the way into July of 1918. And it consisted of five distinct but separate hammer blows to the Allied lines. The first took place on the 21st of March and was called the Somme Offensive. This was followed up soon after by uh, an offensive called the Liz Offensive, then the Aints Offensive, the Noyon Montdidier Offensive, and finally the, Sh- the Champagne Marne Offensive. However, let's step back to that first ferocious attack, which was aimed at the region just south of Vimy in the, in the Somme sector of the battlefield. Incredibly, it pushed the Brits back almost 40 miles in only two weeks of fighting. Now, from a war where victory was measured, victory over the last four years was measured only in yards, an advance of 40 miles was truly significant. So that was what was going on on the ground. But let's turn to the skies. The air above that whole sector was thick with Germans and Allied planes. The Germans had deployed 820 aircraft against the British who were only able 
to put 645 planes in the sky. However, that would soon change, as the British created the Royal Air Force. And that they did that by combining the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Navy Air Service together. So in short order, as the offensive moved uh, proceeded, the British were able to gain a significant numerical advantage over the Germans. The Germans at the uh, German Air Force at the time was called the Deutsche Luftstreitkräfte. Either way, at no other time during the period of the Great War was a better time for an individual to become a fighter pilot. So during that spring offensive, virtually all of the top 10 Great War fighter aces saw action. And historians have ranked them by the, the number of verified or claimed victories. However, there are other factors that we should consider if we are to consider Atki as part of this illustrious group. A pilot didn't just need to have the stats, but they also had to show an evidence of gallantry and bravery in the field or, or the sky, and leave behind legendary tales of notable events, things that their mates would, would bring back and, and tell for years and years after the war. But if we are to prove that Captain Alfred Atke truly merits recognition and that he's in, been truly and unfairly overlooked, we must first prove that his name deserves to be mentioned alongside the greats. Thus, by conducting a more thorough analysis, we can give ourselves that opportunity to see if the achievements of Canada's forgotten ace, Captain Alfred Ackie, have or have not been unjustifiably overlooked. To begin, let's take the time to recognize those who are considered to be the top aces of World War I. These are the individuals whose names have stood the test of time and whose, indiv whose individual achievements have become legendary. The first is known none other than the Red Baron, Eric von Richthofen, the GOAT. His 80 victories accumulated over several years in the air outnumber all other combatants. He was killed on the 21st of April, 1918 at Morlancourt Ridge. But he was known as a feared and fearless warrior, gaining advantage, supremacy, and longevity through the employment of new and innovative tactics while piloting his Albatross D3 or Fokker DRI uh, aircrafts. Richthofen introduced that concept of attacking in groups, and once he got his team to work together as a proud disguise, they were able to knock down imposing aircrafts consistently and with relative ease. On the Allied side, the French fighter pilot René Funk owned the, the, the skies over the Verdun sector for years and was able to score 75 wins. René was so consistent that he counted 10 victories in six separate months. 
and is an example of a pilot who made it through the entire war by just being a patient, effective aerial marksman. And the third is, we cannot forget him, is the Canadian, William Avery, Billy Bishop. Now, Billy Bishop counted 72 victories while stalking enemy scouts over the Somme sector of France and Belgium. Now, of the three of, of the three men, each are considered to be the best of the best, with their names and achievements still resonating more than the second century after they took to the sky. So where do we start? Well, the first area to investigate and determine if Aki's name truly belongs to be mentioned alongside the greats, we need to look at his statistics. How does Aki compare against the best of the best? Well, officially he ranks 35th, not too shabby. However, those numbers don't tell the whole story. While he was 35th out of all flyers, he was a top-scoring pilot for those who piloted a two-seater. He flew a twin-seater Bristol F-2P, also known as the finest aircraft of its type to come out of the war. And in this situation, he piloted with his observer and gunner behind him, Lieutenant George Gass. Uh, Atkey is credited with 38 claimed and or verified victories. Welcome to the Heroes of the Great War podcast. This is Mark Carmichael, writer, researcher, amateur historian. And as today is Robbie Burns Day, I'm also one whose life mantra Robbie himself would support. And that is, life is far too short to drink bar scotch. Welcome to episode three of this podcast series. And this one's going to be a bit longer. And I could actually, I could honestly say that the subject of this uh, podcast would probably not support me telling his story. How do I know? Well, I talked to his grandson, and his grandson said his granddad probably wouldn't support me. However, if we think about it, so many surviving veterans of the Great War would also not support us telling the story of of them taking other people's lives. And I appreciate that. But the subject of this story, when he returned from England at the end of the Great War, he, effect he essentially disappeared for 20 years. He moved to California and got married and basically got, he was totally out of the spotlight for a long time. He became an anti-war pacifist and joined the Church of Latter-day Saints, eventually came back to Canada and raised a family. But I could, I could say the last thing that he'd really want me to do was to glorify war in any way, especially as being a, uh, a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints. It's, it's definitely something that they would not support. And I understand and I appreciate this. But I also can say that, well, as a historian, it is our jobs to tell the stories of the past. Uh, we all have a shared past, and, and not all the stories are are something that 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 we, we have to kind of put under the covers. It's we have to be able to highlight who we are and where we came from, and and tell the extraordinary stories of extraordinary people who did extraordinary feats in extraordinary times. 
it's essential and it's important for us to do so. And I can I could say that the the subject of this story he didn't think that he was that special. How he knew he was good at what he was doing and that he could make a difference and help his country out in the time where they needed it, but he didn't really think himself as special. However, what he was able to accomplish in, accomplish in such a short period of time is a story that needs to be told. It's a good story. It's an interesting story. It's a compelling story. So, here is a story of the Canadian war race, Captain Alfred Claiborne Atkey. Now, all the data that I've used was taken from a website called theaerodrome.com. And it's an important website because it includes all of the data on all of the top great war aces, including all of their claimed victories, including date, time, any available information on their opponent. So let's look at what I defi define as the efficiency factor. In a detailed analysis of all the victories claimed by the top 20 pilots, actually show that Aki was in a class by himself, if you look at it from a 30-day period. So from a 30-day period, say May of 1918, Aki shot down 28 planes in 30 days. In the next top scoring ace, would be the British pilot, Edward Bannock. He only had 19. He also completed those in May of 1918 as well. The third top scoring pilot was Ernst Judith, the German pilot. He had 17 and he, and he uh, claimed those in, in August of 19 with the Red Baron, Eric von Richthofen, also scoring 17, but he did that in bloody April of 1917. Finally, the British pilot George McElroy also had 17, and he did that in July of 1918. But these numbers are important because they suggest that in a 30-day time frame, Aki could boast a 93% efficiency ratio every day in that one month, with the next highest scoring person at only 63% a 30% difference between him and the next most efficient air pilot. Let's now look at the playoffs, the German Spring Offensive. And as that German Spring Offensive represented one of the most consequential periods of both the Greater War in general and the Air War in particular, it started on March 21st and continued all the way to July 18th of 1918. An objective view of his stats place him high on the list of the top ace. We understand that the GOAT, Eric von, von Richthofen, was killed kind of early in that offensive, in early April 1918, and it left him out of the contest for the majority of the battle. So his wins and his leadership, fierceness, his ingenuity and consistently place him always at the top. So he's in a kind of a class by its own. But of the top scoring aces for the Spring Offensive, here's the list. With 39 is Edward Manick, the British pilot. Then 
with 35 is a Canadian Don McLaren. The third is Alfred Atke at 33. And this is followed up by German Eric Lowenhart at 25 and the British pilot George McElroy at, at 23. Gallantry. And while the concept of gallantry and bravery in the field is always subjective, in the, in the perspective of war, bravery is often being classified as any action worthy of a medal. Now, the top medal one could earn in the Great War as a British pilot was the Victoria Cross. And two Canadians won the VC. They were Billy Bishop and William Barker. Edward Manick, James McCutton, Andrew Beauchamp Proctor, and Albert Ball were all also VC recipients. So while Atke was never awarded the VC, he was awarded both a military cross and a bar to go along with it. And the citations for his two medals are as follows. For the military cross, and this was published in the, in the London Gazette on the 22nd of June, 1918. For conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty. When engaged on reconnaissance and bombing work, he attacked four scouts, one of which he shot down in flames. Shortly afterwards, he attacked four two-seater planes, one of which he brought down out of control. And on two previous occasions, his formation was attacked by superior numbers of the enemy, three of whom in all were shot down out of control. He has shown exceptional ability and initiative on all occasions. And this was followed up by when he was awarded the bar to go with his military cross. And the following was printed in the London Gazette on the 16th of September, 1918. For conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty, during recent operations, he destroyed seven enemy machines. When engaged with enemy aircraft, often superior, far superior in numbers, he proved himself a brilliant fighting pilot and displayed dash and gallantry of a high order. Stepping away from bravery and conspicuous gallantry, let's have a look at notable feats. Now, notable feats tend to be subjective in nature. First, they're, be called, they're called notable because someone had to take note of them and consider them worthy of praise. And there's one particular event that occurred early in May of 1918, which has truly resonated throughout the lore of the Great War, Air War history. It is retold as a story of the two against the 20. And accounts of this remarkable battle were printed in newspapers across Canada, and I actually stumbled upon one when I was doing some research and reading a copy of the Port Perry Star. Now, based upon accounts of this event, it proceeded as follows. On the evening of May 7th, during the heart of the German Spring Offensive, Lieutenant Ackie and his observer, Lieutenant George Gass, were flying alongside their mates, Lieutenant John Gurdon and 2nd Lieutenant Anthony Thornton. Now, both airmen were piloting Bristol F-2Bs. As they patrolled an area, 
just northeast of the city of Arras. We should make note that it was during this time of the war where both the Germans and the Brits were truly battling it out for air superiority. Control of the skies allowed one side to the other the freedom to control and maintain the secrecy on the movement of their supplies, of their armaments and their troops. And Atkin and Gurdon were tasked with conducting a reconnaissance mission over German-held areas. It was just after 8.45 on that evening, 18.45 or 6.45 p.m., when the pair noticed a group of enemy aircraft. And not wanting to let an opportunity go to waste, Aking and Gurdon dove to attack the group of German scouts. So from this initial mover, both Atkin and Gurdon were able to claim one victory each. But and in most cases, um, and for most pilots, uh, they'd consider that a full day's work, and they'd head back home to base. However, not on that day. For only seconds later, they look up and they'd realize the mess that they got themselves into. They may have been able to shoot down two planes, but when they look up, they shook up a veritable hornet's nest of German planes, with at least 20 planes scrambling to attack him. One can imagine the sight from the trenches, down below as the men looked up and watched in amazement, a sky full of German planes against two British fighters. The twisting and turning, the diving and evading of the oncoming attackers in the battle would go on for almost 30 minutes. However, in the end, those two pilots, the two British pilots, not only persevered, but both survived and managed to make their way back to base. That duo of Atkin and Gas boasted of downing five enemy crafts, and Gurdon and, and Thornton claimed three. But here's the amazing and most notable feat. Atkin and Gas were able to repeat it all over again two days later when they knocked another five German planes out of the sky. Ten planes downed in a span of 72 hours. A truly noteworthy achievement indeed. The final area where we should complete an analysis of and show that the best truly shine brightest in the rest is in the area of consistency. In success in war, um, especially the World War I that took place over a period of almost five years, can be found that it was more of a, a marathon than a sprint. So if, if a, as the pilot in the air, he, during that long period of time, they needed to adapt to the rapid changes of technology and tactics and then respond to the enemy's introduction of new technology and tactics. And through all that, they, they had to accomplish one of the most important components. They needed to survive. So if you look at the top 10 aces of the war, all of them, the top 10, all confirmed victories while serving more than 12 months in the sky. The GOAT, Richtofen, scored his victories over a period of 20 months. And the French ace, René Fonck, incredibly ruled the skies for over 28 months. 
the Canadian Raymond Shaw, Collie Shaw, 24 months. And then James McCunnan, the Brit, and Eric Lowenhart, the German, for 17 months. And these time spans represent an evidence of consistency, especially when compared against the average lifetime or lifespan of a Great War pilot, which was a mere 10 weeks. Alfred Ackie, his wins were achieved in only a five-month time span. So one of the caveats that we have to look at his service is that he did fly from, for more than two years, however, really only five months uh, in the Western Front. And also a, rev a review of his service records suggests that after his incredible month of May in 1918, he was sent back to England to rest and to actually help assist in training of new re recruits. And then in June of 1918, he was injured in a crash in England, and unfortunately it kept him out of service for the remainder of the war. So to summarize, as we assess the ranking of aces who served in the Great War, evidence shows that there are several factors that need to be taken, need to be taken into consideration when evaluating a pilot. The first is statistics. Statistics provide empirical objective evidence of a pilot's achievements. Then recognition. Recognition is, is where the best aces are formally recognized by their peers as being the best of the best. The third relates to the stories that they were able to leave behind. In the fourth is the ability for a pilot to prove himself over time to be a dependable, consistent, and skilled fighter pilot. So as demonstrated, an objective analysis of Atke's qualifications and history prove that his results do merit a reassessment of his achievement. Achievements. So with 28, 26 victories in the month of May and 28 within a 30-day period, we can easily say and prove that Aki was a most highly effective and highly skilled fighter pilot. And a thorough review of Aki's record as an airman demonstrates that he has been overlooked and his achievements in France do merit greater recognition. This story is brought to you in thanks to my daughter, who joined me in searching for the final resting spot of Captain Alfred Clay I had learned of his existence only earlier one day, a couple years ago, when after hearing his name mentioned in a meeting of the, of the Central Ontario branch of the Western Front Association. Incredibly, I learned that one of Canada's, Canada's top World War I aces was buried in a cemetery less than 10 minutes from my house. I had to go find him. So I tossed my kid in the car, and we went directly over to the cemetery, and then spent the next hour and a half searching up and down the row upon row of, of, of tombstones and grave markers, back and forth, back and forth. And incredibly, it was an hour and a half, and finally, 
we found them. In that grave marker for Canada's fifth highest scoring fighter pilot was found partially obscured by an unkempt clump of crap grass. I didn't find any accompanying plaque that mentioned who he was or the remarkable achievements he was able to accumulate overseas in France in such a short period of time. It just noted his name and his rank in the RCAF, flight officer. Now that rank pertained to the rank that the government gave him in World War II. They gave one of our greatest aces when he was volunteering to assist just a title of flight captain. And I do hope that the research that we've conducted will prompt further investigation of the remarkable achievements of Alfred Aki and clear away some of the oversights of his past. Hopefully we could provide Aki with the true recognition and a collective appreciation that he so well and so richly deserves from his native country, Canada. Now, after Alfred Aki passed away on February 10, 1971, and is buried at Spring Creek Cemetery in Mississauga. So if you're in that area, drop by and say hi. Remember him. <laughs>